Bill, are the most talented actors the ones who make it in Hollywood? Are the most talented actors the ones who make it in Hollywood? Um, that's a very intriguing question. Um, I think that some actors who make it in Hollywood are very talented. They're some of my heroes, uh, the Meryl Streep's of the world. Um, um, you know, a lot of people um, that I love their work, but um, I think a lot of it's luck, looks, uh, strategic alliances and relationships, your agent, um, and a lot of business components. Um, so everybody I see as an actor, um, like, you know, Seymour Hoffman, unfortunately, who died recently, you know, acting takes courage. It's not about, you know, how you look only, but Meryl Streep doesn't care how she looks. She just surrenders to the truth of the character. Not everybody has the ability to do that. They look good and they can pretend to be that person. It's not the same as being that person. And there are not many actors that will surrender to that. Being that person, is that doing this whole method acting thing and maybe going off and unfortunately using substances or, or no. really? No, no, no. It, so it's no. not, that's no. not method no. acting. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, there are all kinds of acting techniques and whoever wants to go that way, fine. Uh, but it's idiotic for an actor to think that in order to play a meth head that he has to take crystal meth. Uh, it's, it's like, um, that's insanity. Actors who can play a crystal meth head talk to crystal meth users and see what they do. But the truth of the matter is, once he sees that, or she sees that, what ac great actors understand is that we are everything. So therefore, you don't have to take crystal meth, you just surrender to the crystal meth head within you. Hmm. See, actors who play they may hate child molesters, they may hate uh, murderers, they may hate whatever as people. But what they realize at one time or another in their lives, they have evil too. And surrendering to that is the, I mean, to me that's the strength, the glory, the courage of great actors. And we don't have many of them, unfortunately. We always hear about that artistic struggle where someone, you know, grew up in an orphanage and they overcame, you know, terrible hardship and then they were able to take all that sort of angst and then turn it into roles. But does someone have to go through all that? Can someone be from a great upbringing, their parents paid for their college education, and then they can somehow turn that on and tap into that dark side that they don't want to admit within a, a nice party of people that they have, but everybody does have it. Do you have to struggle? I, 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 don't, I don't know anybody who hasn't been through pain. I, 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 don't, I mean, I know very wealthy people, and they're some of my friends of mine, but the size of the house 
and the model of the car and the clothes that you wear to mask your humanity and your vulnerability is nothing real. I mean, you can go into many, many mansions and meet misery in the face. I mean, so an actor who's grown up in, in, in privilege, it doesn't mean that his father did not abuse him. Right. It does not mean his mother was not insane. It means the, the appearance of perfection was there. Right. Does that make any sense? Yeah, fascinating. So going back to the most talented actors make it, making it in Hollywood, you've mentioned many factors. What does work ethic play into that? And what if somebody has so many things, especially work ethic, but is somehow lacking in something else and never makes it? I mean, is it work ethic is the, can you fail at having a great work ethic and really try to make it in this business? Well, I think what you're talking about, you know, having a great worth uh, work ethic and still failing, that applies to any business. I mean, you can know everything, but if you don't know anybody, whatever you know becomes insignificant because you have no path to realize your dream. You have to have a mission, a, a, a path. Some people are very lucky and very fortunate. And they exchange sexual favors or whatever it is and they get ahead or whatever, no pun intended, but the fact of the matter is, is that um, just being talented only, uh, it's kind of a, and this is my opinion, uh, a naive thought in terms of making it because it's called show business. And if you are, have a nice face and a nice body, that's okay. Um, but you have no understanding of the industry, um, you can be used for some period of time, but um, the time that you're being used, um, you should be leveraging. You know, a friend of mine says this, and I, I believe it now, you know, he says, this is a pimp and hole game, you know. He says, as long as you're not the one wearing the fishnets and pumps all the time, it's a good game to be in. <laughs> as long as you pimp it sometimes, too. But if you're just because I don't look good in fishnets and pumps. That's one of the things that I have a problem with. You know, it's, you don't want to see that picture. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that let the agents and the managers go out there in their fishnets and pumps and provide something for you that you're paying your percentage to. So right. talent is one aspect of it, but the business of making sure that your talent, talent is leveraged to your benefit also you should own something. You should own your own content at some point. And right now, listen, these guys, two guys made a feature film with two cell phones. So you're waiting to be discovered and <laughs> I'm just. So I watched a video uh, where you spoke on uh, directors on directing. That was the title of the, of the series. And you used an analogy of a shredder and you said that you've seen a lot of people maybe that you know, their kids or other people that are beautiful actors, beautiful bodies, beautiful faces, come through Hollywood. And then you see them change a few years later because they came or they wanted to be in the business for the show, but they didn't realize what the business was. And you said the business is the shredder and you don't really come out the same. I believe that, or I've experienced that, if you don't have an understanding of this industry, 
uh, and the systems of the industry uh, without a stroke of divine intervention um, it's difficult to not only be successful but to survive um, a friend of mine was an executive at a studio and I were talking one day and he was we were talking about females in the business and he's a lot of women come through his office you know and they're sent by friends or they audition he sees the audition or whatever and he says um, I, I know it's, it's it's hard but it's harder for women I said what do you mean he says well let's take it this put it this way in terms of I'll tell you two examples he said um, women 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38. Hmm. So I'll give you an example. He said, um, Harrison Ford can uh, be a lead in the film and have a female love interest that's in her late 30s, early 40s. He said, name one female actress in her 70s that could have a male co-part lead in his late 30s or 40s. Name one. It would cause a lot of stir. I think that we may not be seeing that uh, in anything soon. So a lot of people come out of here with dreams, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with dreaming, but have some kind of strategic plan that, you, I mean, when I was coming here, black man, big guy, dark, um, there was no internet, there was no uh, YouTube, uh, Facebook, um, people that look at like me right now coming out here they can create webisodes for nothing and they can be seen and their work can be seen and they can actually um, like what um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia start off as a webisode then individual saw it and now it was about nine years so the thing is is that I mean I always say to these kids what are you waiting for you're waiting for a system that is I think what is I forgot the exact stats at SAG, but I think it's that of the entire union, between 5 and 10 percent work at all annually, uh, that that 10 percent, only a couple of a percentages make over $10,000 a year. Just go by the stats. So if you don't come in here understanding the reality of what you're facing, it's not the most pleasant journey. So knowing that people do change coming out here, and I've witnessed it myself in just casual, just knowing certain people over the years, and it does, it, it does change you. How can someone preserve themselves a little bit or be maybe not as jaded, or maybe they go through a jaded period and then they come out the other side? Do, do you have any recommendations? I mean, was there ever a time when you wanted to just quit the business I know you had gone through a time in the 80s when you felt you were overexposed, or maybe an agent told you that. So it sounds like everybody almost has to have this like roller coaster ride a little bit. Is there a way to flatline or no? That doesn't happen. There's a great book. Uh, there's two books that I would recommend to people. Um, 
One is by Stephen Pressfield. It's called The War of Art. It's one of the greatest books I've ever read. Helped change my life. The War of Art. Another one is by Seth Godin. It's called The Dip. And The Dip talks about people who are serious about whatever they're doing. They go, 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 then they have a dip. You know, now you have one of two choices of getting out of that. You know, you can continue doing what you're doing, or you can begin to learn from where you've been and turn it into an advantage. So if you want to be an actress for 20 years or 15 years and you never really were able to get foot, a foothold or a great agent or whatever, you can either stop or you can say, hmm, how can I use another way of getting to where I want to go? And today there's no excuse. As I said, webisodes, mobile TV, games, cell phone apps, kids made a feature film with two cell phones. I mean, what are you waiting for? The thing is that we're caught in this old paradigm that I cannot do anything without the permission of a system. And if you continue to think that way, you're right. You're waiting for permission. But suppose you say, I'm no longer waiting for permission. I'm going to create my own opportunity. It may not be perfect in the beginning, but I'm going to refine it. I'm going to create strategic alliances. I'm an actor-writer, but I know a, star a starving director over there. That guy hasn't worked in five years, and he's looking for something. Maybe he and I, or I know a set designer who's kind of, or a producer hasn't was fired four years ago, hasn't worked since. And, but that kind of thinking. Uh, it's another book that uh, Seth Godin wrote called Tribes. He says, stop trying to do it by yourself. Stop trying to do it by yourself. You don't have to. I remember when that thing was called a Nagra. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it cost $5,000. What the hell? It's $250. Jesus, at you guys are killing me here, man. <laughs> <laughs> 250 bucks. Yeah, less than 300 Great sound. Yeah, great sound. God. This is what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So this, this professor, and you, you don't have to name the school. It'd be best not to, but... This professor was giving advice to students, and you noticed that that advice was either already obsolete or would be obsolete by the time most of them paid off their student loans. No, by the time they graduated. By the time they graduated. And what they learned from the school would be obsolete, and they would not be able to pay off the student loan with what they learned. This is very upsetting. When you went back to you went back to film school because you said you in prior press you weren't able to book roles for a while or you had hit a, a dip and so you decided to take matters into your own hands and become a filmmaker. What things did you retain from that time? Was it AFI that you yes. went? To? Okay. Um, and what what were myths? So what was extremely helpful that you still remember today that you still use? whether it's just people skills or giving feedback to an actor, and what, what were myths? 
Uh, the American Film Institute was a great learning place. Um, a great man who's partly responsible for me being in this industry is named Tony Vellani. And he was the head of the American Film Institute at the time. And Tony was a no-nonsense person. Um, at that time, it was a cutting process. You paid your money, and you were not guaranteed to finish the two years because every quarter in the basement um, of the school, there was a sheet of paper. If your name was not on it, you were dismissed. And they were preparing you for the reality of this industry of the rejection and how no matter how good you thought you were, you had to keep kicking your game up. And so what it gave me is no matter what anybody else says about my work and I see it in the theater, I know it could be better. And I'm always thinking about, man, I wish I had one more day or one more take with that actor or whatever it is, I could have done it better. Um, so they gave you a realistic understanding of the industry and prepared you for it pretty well. Um, I think what every school does, it sends you out there with hopes and dreams. It tells you that it's not going to be easy, but they really don't tell you how hard it's really going to be. Because I think they don't want to discourage you from, because it's like, it's a beast. I mean, not only for black people, anybody. I mean, it's like, why are we doing it? You, you wonder sometimes. You, I mean, well, you know, I, I could retire. I mean, I could, I, I could just live. But, you know, there's something that um, I had a dinner at my house. This was like uh, a year ago. And uh, like nine people were there. And the discussion was about, in your lifetime, out of all of the people you've ever known, what percentage of them ended up doing what they wanted to do with their lives? Percentage, percentage was three. Three percent. So when I look at my good fortune, all I continue to go through and have been through, but I am still doing at my age what I want to do with my life, and I wake up every day and I want to do more. I do never want to retire. No matter what the pain has been, I feel I've been blessed. Because most of my friends that I grew up with are dead. Or if they're not dead, they retired from jobs they hated that they did for 35 years or more. And they retire and they sit on the porch and go on cruises and stuff, which is okay. They never enjoy one day of work. Not one day. There's something Why do you think most people choose that? Because I think, you know, most people know deep down inside what they really want to do. Is it, it just that it's too difficult? It, well, why do most people make that choice? I think security. There's some security in having, you know, two kids and the house and the car. Um, working at a job that gives you insurance for your family, vacations, um, retirement guaranteed. Um, it, there's a certain security about having that. Some people weigh happiness 
against security. For 90% of people, security always wins. Particularly if you have kids, because once you have a child, I mean, it's, your life is secondary to the needs of what you've created in this world. But um, there's another side to it in that if you wake up every morning and uh, you don't have security, but you love waking up, you love going to work, you love the fight, no matter how painful it is, you, you will, okay, Goliath, my stone's not that big, but I see your damn eye, man. I see, I see right here, man. I'm not saying today, but you see this little, I'm, 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 twirling, I'm twirling the stone, you know. It's taking me longer than I thought. You're going down. Can you recall a time that in your career you were sure that you had, quote, made it? And then as things happen in this town, you never really make it until you've actually received the check or you show up or whatever. There's so many variables. And then another time when you thought I'd never work again in this business and you were, you were pleasantly surprised. Uh, well, there are times I thought I'd never make it in this business. I remember being in New York City as a young actor, you know, and um, I graduated from NYU School of the Arts and I got a part in the, in the Nero Ensemble Company and that was pretty prestigious and worked a couple more gigs as an actor, stage actor. And then um, couldn't pay my rent. Um, didn't work for six, six or eight months. Unemployment ran out and I ended up panhandling on the street. But before that, I, me and my girlfriend used to steal you put on these trench coats even in the summertime and we sewed these big pockets on the inside. We'd go to the AMP supermarket and we'd put meat and stuff in them. And we'd buy like maybe some cereal and just, that was a low, low, low point. Um, then I panhandled and um, it was like, I was a drug head, you know. Then I found transcendental meditation and other things and that saved my life. Another times would be uh, when Palmerstown USA was a hit show on, I think, CBS. Uh, Alex Haley and Norman Lear, a couple of seasons, making great money, high lifestyle. I said, okay, now I've done this. I've proved myself as an actor. Didn't work for two years. It's like, it made me really question my talent quit acting, went to the American Film Institute. American Film Institute uh, made a film there and short and uh, called The Hero, got awards and stuff. Nobody would buy it. Nobody would take me as an actor, as a director. Got depressed, went away to a meditation retreat. David Jake, um, my agent calls me and says, come in to right away um, to, because uh, David Jacobs wants to see you um, possibly to shoot Knott's Landing. I was there, I went back, drove so fast, got back, on Monday I was in David Jacobs' office, he and I talked, said thank you, went home, got a call from my agent, you're hired. 
Nasland. I called everybody I knew, man. It's just like heaven, heaven, heaven. Uh, Joe Wallenstein, the producer, on the last day of prep, called me in office, office, his office and said, Bill, great prep. We know you would make it, man, because you're great. Good. You could tell by your reel. I said, what reel? I said, well, the reel that you sent us from your other shows. I said, I, said, I just got out of AFI, man. I just got my... He says, wait a minute. Goes in David Jacobs' office. David Jacobs had mixed my box up with somebody else's. So I got hired by mistake. So they followed me around for the first three days. Once they knew what I was doing. And that was one of the higher points of my career because it was like, I, I mean, I got multiple episodes of that show and multiple episodes of other shows and based upon that particular triumph for me. And that was, because I was at low and then I came to a high. Then I directed like, you know, Sister Act 2 and other films and Hoodlum and movies. But, you know, it's like you think, okay, I've proven myself here. But if it doesn't make the ex a certain amount of money, no matter, if it, if it breaks even, makes a certain profit, okay. But for most of us that are black directors in this industry, if it doesn't just blow the roof off, it's... Uh, not easy. So you decided to do a documentary entitled Dark Girls? Yeah, I decided to put a documentary division to my company and I put my own money up with my then partner Chanberry and we just, something you should never do in Hollywood but we believed in it. And we made a documentary about racism in the black community called Dark Girls with dark-skinned with dark women, what they've gone through, including my sister and family and I wanted to talk about it because there's so much pain because young girls today in, in playgrounds are still going through that. We made it and uh, toured it around the country and by the grace of God, uh, Oprah Winfrey's folks saw it. Now I, now I have a three-picture deal with Oprah Winfrey. The light girls, what is a man and what is a woman. And now the Dark Girls book will be coming out. Harper Collins picked the book up. November 4th, the Dark Girls book is coming. And now Harper Collins is talking about uh, possibly doing uh, the What is a Man book and What is a Woman book also. And I'm also creating a cell phone app company. I'm creating brands now so that if I do a project, it's not only going to be a film, but it's a feature film or a television movie or a documentary. It's going to be a brand. So I'll have the film, a book, and a cell phone app. So going back to when Dark Girls was first released and it screened, I understand there was a mixed reaction because some people applauded you for bringing this problem out into, you know, general society, whatever. But then some people were upset because they felt, oh, well, you're divulging something we want to sweep under the rug. Well, you know, it, uh, two things that are disturbing, you know, I'm a documentarian one of the things I do. So as a documentary filmmaker, particularly putting your own money up, you're saying, okay, I've, I'm giving a voice to the voiceless. I'm helping heal pain. Um, and um, that's my attempt to help. That's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a filmmaker. Two questions that were faced. We're talking about the Apollo Theater, a few thousand people, Warner Theater, and it's just like, Two questions were asked. One, so what are you going to do now for us? 
I'm saying to them, I said, you know, I'm a filmmaker. You are so the audience, if you got something from the film, your teachers, your psychiatrists, your business people, what are you going to do is the question, not me. I'm not a political leader. I'm a filmmaker. So what are you going to do? And then there's, oh, okay, we got to think about that. And then the second thing was a lady in the Apollo Theater, I showed the film, and she stood up. She was an older lady, and she said, oh, with all the respect, I thought the film was great, but why are you airing our dirty laundry? That's shameful. I said, man, with all due respect, it's because it's stinking up the house. And she didn't like what I said, but I was being honest because there's so many, there's so much in the American community, but in the black community in this nation, there are so many things that we are expecting to be solved by someone else. There's this expectation of salvation, you know, somebody on this horse or this, this train of gold is going to come in and they're going to save us. I remember we were waiting for Godot, you know, a great play. Godot, he never came. The Savior just left on rocks waiting. And I, I, I'm trying to, through my documentaries, I call them edutainment. I'm trying to say, I'm going to entertain you. Here's information that if you apply it to the problems that we face, there's a chance that we can have an impact in a positive way. But I cannot do that for you. That's what, not what I do. I am a filmmaker. And what we're finding is somehow that's not enough. So with Dark Girls, did you already have um, distribution in place before you made your investment in the film? There was not one piece of distribution in place when we put our money together to make Dark Girls. We were passionate about this topic because both of us, my, my co-partner, um, Chan Berry, we had, are both dark-skinned black men who have faced the prejudice of being dark-complected in our own community. And we saw members of our family, little girls, um, from five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old going through this pain being called monkey, ape, darky, gorilla face, uh, ugly, uh, and asking their mothers, can they be bleached lighter because they were ugly and the parents trying to say, so we said, oh, let's see what happens. And so we made the film and we cut a trailer. Put the trailer online and it got 2.3 million global hits and we said we have something we have something so let's see if we can get a touring company to and they did get a touring company tourists around the world the country and different parts of the world and the success was really great we still have no distribution and so we said okay Let's get a broker, maybe a, a booker, and maybe the booker can 
set up some screenings of how much is it going to cost us. As, we, as we're going into the cost for the booker to maybe, say, five or six AMC, AMC theaters or something, it's, it's, oh, man, between the, the booking and the promotion, and can't afford, we're dry. Good run. Went to the film festivals and so on. Got a call on the phone. Oprah Winfrey's interested in uh, you guys screening the film for her. Okay. Sent it to Scott over there. And Scott looked at it, brought it to Oprah's office, saw it, and he said, what's your lawyer's name? And once that happened, it's, uh, it was a, I'm not going to lie, man. It, it was a pain, it, it was painful, man. Some days you want to just say, forget it, man, give up. What about it was painful? And what was the, what time frame are we talking about? <sighs> Year and a half. I mean, you're talking about, you know, your, your, your bank account is dry and uh, you got bills to pay and your, your accountant's pissed at you to the degree of your, you really are, something's wrong with you. <laughs> you spent this money for your, mortgage this year and where's that going to come from um you're crazy you're and you start thinking well, maybe, you know, maybe i was a little crazy and then divine intervention or whatever you want to call it says you're you're doing something that we want you to do so we're going to help you and when that happens it's like <sighs> first time we take a deep breath in a long time You can't give up. You just it's the it's 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 the blessing and curse of this industry, you know. You, you it's 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 a blessing and a curse. I mean you keep going because you're passionate and you're gonna get it done, you know, but it's not painless. And then when someone sees what you see and they have distribution and they say it has value uh Tears, and I don't mean the polite type, I mean the, the snotty type, you know, uh, the, that kind of stuff that really, just thankful. Well, you had told your parents that you wanted to be an actor, and you had said that they were hardworking people and they worked sometimes three jobs, and they didn't want that for you because they wanted you to go to, was it med school? Or you, they, they, had a, they had a second and third grade educations, and life was rough for them. They, ne my, they were never on welfare, never public assistance. They thought that that was shameful for them. My mother worked two jobs, my father worked two and three jobs. And because they knew of what not having an education meant, they insisted that my sister and I go to school. In those days, they told you what you were gonna be. You're gonna be a doctor, because doctors make money. So you're gonna take some pre-med courses. So I was at Dutch Community College, and taking anatomy and physiology and cutting up squalls of canthias and cats. And my bedroom smelled all that smelled like formaldehyde and, you know, cutting veins and arteries and seeing the intestines. And it was fascinating from an artistic point of view, but gory as hell. I mean, God bless doctors, man. I, I mean, really, for real. They do it every day, but it wasn't for me. They said, okay, you failed those courses, okay. Um, you're not gonna do that. Well, you're writing all the time. You're, you're not very outgoing. You're writing your journal. You're gonna be an English teacher, okay? 
So I got a scholarship to Boston University, Martin Luther King Scholarship, in English. And um, I was there for the second year, I think it was. And I'd fallen asleep for the third time in my Chaucer class. Old English and Middle English in Chaucer. God. I mean, I'm not saying, not blasting Chaucer, but Chaucer is rough. I couldn't take it. I fell asleep. Kicked out of the class. I was going to just go back to the Kipsy and just try to get a job at IBM. My roommate, Israel Hicks, says, you've always been, you know, you were in that play at uh, Dutchess Community College. You said you liked acting the Emperor Jones. You always want to do something like that. You told your parents and they just shot you down. Look, you're going to go back to the Kipsy. I want you to get one more show. Just go up to the School of the Arts and talk to the guy, Lloyd Richards, and see if we'd let you in. Lloyd Richards was the first black director on Broadway. He did Raisin in the Sun, a serious play. And so I went up, grace of God, got in. And Lloyd Richards became my mentor after that. I followed him to NYU School of the Arts, gave my first job at the Negro Ensemble Company. And I'm out here today because of Lloyd Richards who became his assistant on the film he did here. So because of him, and I play homage to him all the time, um, he wouldn't allow me to give up. And no matter how hard it was, he said, you're not. He says, you're shaming me. So I understand you mentor young people on becoming uh, directors or actors. What are some of the lessons that you find yourself repeating most to these people? Well, I mentor because I believe passing it forward, and I see tragedies happening around. I see beautiful young girls coming out here. Three years later, they're almost unrecognizable. Young guys coming out with just dreams and no understanding of the business at all, and they are drugged out or just, I don't know, doing crazy stuff. So rejection is, this is business of rejection. So in my classes, we teach two things, several things. We teach the business of the industry. What is the industry? What is distribution? What is financing? What is marketing? What is a studio? What is a network? Uh, what is SAG? What is AFTRA? What's the DGA? Um, what is the business of the industry? Um, and we teach financial literacy. Okay, you made money, right? And everybody tells you to spend it. How do you use it? How do you use money? Teach them that. Then we teach them the paradigm shift between that's happening between film and media. Most of them coming out here like they want to be actors and directors and they want to be Steven Spielberg. I say, okay, it's good, but why not be Steve Jobs too? Notice the last name. Jobs, so we we really cold-blooded in terms of they leave the class, they love and hate us because they they become business people. Maybe they they, they 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 I teach the acting part of it, but they know what a cell phone app is and how to use it. They know what a game is, and they should start getting into those into gaming, not only being in one but creating one. Um, they should really be getting into creating their own webisodes. Well, I don't know how to write a webisode. So, what's that guy doing? Anything? Write one. 
what's that? What, you're not knowing how to do it. What's that got to do with anything? You, if you're serious, you find a way. I can point you to a writer, come up with a good idea. I mean, you know, it's like you have to give them, an, you cannot make an informed decision if you do not have the information to make it with. You can't do it. It's all guessing. You may guess right, but man, all those lumps on the side of your head, my God. What do you see in terms of work ethic in Generation Xers or Millennials? I'm going to get in trouble, but I'll just be honest. Um, thank God I've seen a few exceptions. Hardworking, no excuse. See, there's, only, there's two kinds of assistants that come to me to work on my films. One, they're nice kids, smart kids. You ask them to do something, they go do it, then they walk back and they ask you if this is what you wanted. The other kid is the kid who has observed you and your needs. And before you sit in a directing chair, everything you need is there. <laughs> if you need something else, they run to get it and they run back. And they're there before you get, to, and you get there at 6 o'clock in the morning, they're at 5.30. You leave at 9, they leave at 10. You see, they, 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 they understand the industry and the fact that they know they need missionaries. So once they satisfy my needs, I become their missionary for their next job. They understand it and they get it, but not the majority. The ones who walk, there's a sense of entitlement. I'm not quite sure where the hell that came from, but you know, somehow I look good and I should have that part. What is wrong with you people? Don't you recognize my talent? I'm brilliant and I'm talented and I'm handsome and I have nice breasts and on my butt and I dress, look at how sexy I am. What is wrong with you all? Oh, there's only just a, oh, maybe a, a million or so you landing here per year uh, that look just like you with the same butts and breasts and beauty and I think you have competition. Do you think it's a generational attitude or do you think that the mind of most, I mean, there's a level of narcissism and we all have it, but do you think that's just part of an artist's persona a bit or is it a generational thing? I think it's both. I think for art, in terms of our industry, I think it's a sense of artistry and the rest of it. Um, but there's something about, what can I say? Okay, there's a difference between waiting to be discovered by someone and discovering yourself. It's like, being discovered and discovering yourself is a different consciousness. Sure. And I think the newbies now are, there's some kind of entitlement mentality. But it's partially our fault too, because we have not prepared them for this. And so, you know, the Lindsay Lohans of the world, those, those kids, I feel sorry for them, you know, that the, the media just torches and just devours them. But 
I mean, you, you make a couple of films, you think, hey, you've made it, you know, and you take a script to somebody and you say, um, I know I made those films, but now I'm going to make this one. And they tell you, I'm going to say this once. Shut your goddamn mouth. <laughs> Sit down. And don't come back until I call you. You have no power. Uh, that's kind of a painful thing. Um, and if you don't have God in your life or meditation or something, you're going to take something to, to kill that pain. And you're going to take something. It could be alcohol, drugs, with ecstasy. But the point is, is that this is a business of rejection. <coughs> and I'm not so sure this generation is, understands the, the layers of the rejection, the levels of the rejection. People who won um, Grammys, let's say, in music um, <coughs> two years ago, where are they today? I haven't heard the names. Uh, people have started mo nice movies, uh, independent movies, did a great job. Where's their next film, their third film or whatever? I'm just simply saying it's, it's a business of rejection. And if you think because you have talent that that is what's going to get you through, I think you're in for a painful journey. But if you have the understanding of a business person and you're creating maybe your website, your webisode company, and you're creating your something else, and plus your film, and you're creating strategic alliances with other people, you're, you may have a shot, and you may take that next role you get in leverage. Look at Queen Latifah. I mean, she, Queen Latifah was a rapper, made a couple of movies, then had a clothing line, and that was her own show, and producing movies. <coughs> if you want to follow an example of a business person, if I was a woman in this business, I'd look at her. I mean, I, a lot of pretty actresses out here who are acting, but those looks ain't gonna last, I mean, they're gonna last after 32, you're, I mean, I'm not trying to be mean, it's, they just don't take you seriously. So what are you going to do? Weep and cry, or are you going to say, I get it, and from this age to this age, I'm going to leverage everything you give me into my future, which is owning my content. Bill, having gone on auditions for years and maybe not knowing why you didn't get a part, then you become a filmmaker. And now you sit on that other side of the desk. Do you let potential actors or documentary subjects know why they didn't get a part? Why, why not? You always hear actors are so frustrated because they never know what it was. It could have been nothing personal, just somebody's height. They weren't a good match as someone's daughter, whatever it was. But do you let actors know? Or you know that that's just part of the business, that's just protocol? Somebody calls me and wants to talk to me, I'll tell them the truth. But most people go away and they take it personally. It's not personal. It's just a cruel rejecting business. I mean, I mean even if you come in and you're right for the part. I, I was, I, I was, I was a film, I, I won't name the, the film, but I was directing this film for a studio once and the, the head of the studio was sitting here and the head of marketing was here, and here's me. 
We're going through a file of actors, pictures and stuff. And I'm talking about how good the actor is and how he's right for the part. And the executive looks at me and he looks at the marketing person and he says, oh, you like this, right? The marketing person says, no global. I learned so fast because it had something to do with the actors. But if they had no global audience, they're not going to be in the film. They could, have, they could have done the greatest audition for that part, but they bring no business. And the actor goes home and says, I was great, and they rejected me. Maybe I'm not so good. No, you're brilliant. You were the best guy for the part, but no global. So knowing that there's a shredder that shreds people's egos and all this stuff and it can do a lot of damage, you still remained, you still seem humble and in good spirits. I'm sure there's days that it's maybe tougher than others. Yesterday. Okay. Okay, maybe then I'm wrong. All right. So, all right. But then how do you remain level or maybe you just accept that that's not there's an ebb and flow you're gonna have a dark day you're gonna have a good day you're gonna have a sad you know I want to quit um, <clears throat> how do you maintain your self-ness I was very very fortunate 40 years ago to discover transcendental meditation transcendental meditation saves my life every single day I meditate every day and I do things like yoga. I am a crazy person, so I do Bikram yoga. 112 degrees and 26 postures, and that takes a lot of stress out. And a little Tai Chi. I'm in the gym three days a week. So it builds my, it's not only my physical, but it builds my, my fortitude, and I believe in God. I see the witness. I mean, I'm not a, I don't go to church very much, but I, I, I know from me experiencing there's something there. I, I, I can't describe it to you. I've seen divine intervention. I, 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 it, it's, I, I can tell you, I'll give you one example of this show that's going to probably get done, this movie. I was sitting in a restaurant talking about... Um, this organization that I really needed to come on board to make this movie happen. Me and my friend were talking, and my, me and my lawyer were talking. And how are we going to get to this organization? Because I don't really know anybody in, organi in, in you know, the studio and organization, etc. And so there's this guy sitting with two people next to us, and every once in a while he'd look over at us, you know. So he gets and pays the bill. And um, he says, uh, here's my card. He was the guy. <laughs> he, he was the executive of this thing. What are the chances? Take that to Vegas. What are the chances of that? I'll give you another example of divine intervention. In 1984, I was in a plane crash. I don't swim. I crashed in the ocean. Pilot gets out. Everybody's out of the plane. I was standing on the wing with this little life donut around my neck. And the pilot says, jump, jump, undertow, undertow. And I said, I don't swim. He says, jump, undertow. I said, well, I'm going to die anyway. I might as well 
I jump, I forgot to tie the donut around my waist. I go around once, twice, third time, donut's here. I take it, put it around my head. He says, paddle away. Like a dog, I do like this and kick my feet. Get 100 feet away, the plane goes down whoosh, to the ocean. If I'd been on the wing, I would have died. Lady says, boats, planes, boats, planes. I think she's delusional because before we die, we just see because there's blood in the water and there's, we're in the middle of the ocean. And now check this out. Twice a year, the Hawaii Fire Department sends its emergency rescue teams out to do emergency rescue exercises in all different parts of the ocean. This day, they were one half nautical miles from where the hell we crashed and they came and saved us. Take that to Vegas and get the odds on that. I'm in the, I'm in the boat going back to the shore in Hawaii. And I'm sitting next to the pilot, I'm saying, you saved my life. You gave me instructions on how to paddle away. He, he looks at me, this guy's maybe six foot four, skinny, pale, Ichabod crane looking, blue eyes. I can see his face now, black hair with white stripes in it. I say, I just, I just, I just want to thank you for saving my life. He said to me, he says, I, I appreciate you saying that to me, he says, but I don't know who you pray to, you know. He says, I'm a Catholic, so I pray to God and Jesus. He says, but don't thank me. Whatever you pray to, thank that. And he grabs my arm, he looks in my face, and he starts crying like a baby. I didn't do that. I didn't save myself. I didn't, I don't have that kind of, I don't swim, so something um, that I can't even define uh, said, we're not finished with you yet, just got some things for you to do, go on and keep doing them. So that's why I'm here. Since that day in 94, do you take things as seriously? Is there an air of, I mean, I'm at a loss for words, but. Time freak. Sleep is an inconvenience. I don't like, sleep is, a, I, I don't like, I got things I want to do because I. You know, it's interesting because when I was preparing these notes, I saw something on Quora which is a social media platform, and someone posted a question, do you think people that have high energy levels um, have an unfair advantage? And for some reason, I really wanted to ask you this question. It was just like, it wasn't the normal question, but I really felt the need to ask it to you. And we put it as one of the ones at the bottom. But it sounds like you have a lot of energy, whether it's through the meditation and it renews you, but have you seen that in other people where maybe their energy level is not as high and so they don't get as many things done? And is that high energy level ne necessary? You know, the, the multitasking all of that. The volume of the energy, high or low, is important. But what's more important is it focused. People with lower energy levels get things done too because they're focused. People with higher energy levels, a lot of things, right? But they're not focused. A higher energy without a plan, without a vision, without a strategy is called frustration. See? Lower high energy without focus is frustration. 
I may want it, I see it over there, but how am I going to get over there? If it's a mountain, I think I need climbing boots and a rope and stuff. But I just want to go over there. Oh, but there you got it. It's, it's up. But when I want to go over there, I want to go over there. When you see a young actor who's not focused, how do you bring them into the present? The only thing I can do is give them information and say, listen, I'm not in any way trying to stop you from dreaming. But a lot of dreamers out here. Only not many make it, not many really reach their dreams. Uh, in order to do that, you have to be focused with a plan. And even if this plan doesn't work, you have to, you, you can, don't ever give up. When you give, you know, um, I say, you know, whatever you empower destroy, can create or destroy you, you know, it's like if you, if it's, if you're not responsible for your own life and you are not moving ahead and you're not doing this and you're succumbing to all of the resistances that come along with every trying to achieve anything great, you are that resistance. So it's a big giant. So what? He's got a toe. Bite it. He wants you to think he's invincible. That's his job because he's big. Yeah. Okay. You, you stick a pin in a giant's toe. <laughs> it's only a pin. You stick it in there, you know. And then you have to calculate which way he's going to fall because you want to go that way. <laughs>